how long does it take your loved ones uh, to start trusting you again? I don't know. <laughs> it took mine years, years and years. Roughly how long? Like seven, eight? No, I would say at least five. Hey, folks. Welcome to uh, our sixth episode of our podcast that we have called Beyond Sobriety. My name's Jim uh, Quigley. My friend next to me on the right is Todd Tamat. Timot. Timot. That's all right. Dang it. <laughs> I'm going to get it one right one. I should have practiced uh, before going live, but uh, he forgives me. I can already tell. Um, so today's topic, um, we went through our topic list, which we'd like to add to another plug for anybody that wants to send us. But um, the topic that I chose today is how do I start trusting again? And, um, you know, Put yourself in this scenario. I've had a loved one. Okay, they've struggled with substance abuse for quite some time, and let's say that there's been part of part of that struggle. There's been some bright spots of success, right? So you've seen somebody. Um, they've had some success, only to end in another relapse, um, which uh, led to a new bottom, and maybe you're experiencing some success with them again, but your, your heart's starting to get hard about this. You know, you're starting, uh, you're, you're, you're wondering, you know, how do I encourage them and still protect myself from, from a failure, uh, that is quite possible. How do I believe them that this is real this time? These are all very real, uh, thoughts and emotions, um, that, 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 um, that people, uh, that have loved ones that struggle with, substance abuse uh, deal with. And, you know, on the other side of the coin, people that have um, the struggle themselves, uh, they go through real struggles with these concepts too. How do I know that this time is the last time? Um, you know, how long is it going to take before my parents really understand or my loved ones really understand really what's going on in my heart? So these are very they're very deep rooted uh, thought processes on both sides of this equation that I, that I, when I saw the topic on the list, I felt, you know, this would be a good thing to talk, talk about, especially like, like, you know, we're in the holiday season and, you know, you may have loved ones, you know, we, I think we talked about a little bit of this last time uh, before Thanksgiving, you might be seeing people um, in holiday season. We see a, usually an influx, you know, with Christmas and new years, you get a lot of people that, that uh, are not going towards treatment, um, but it's uh, right now that need it. But uh, the 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 pressure cooker of family and friends and holidays uh, leads to usually a, a kind of a busy January, right? Um, and the normal desire to have a good strong year and start off the year right, you know. And you know, a lot of embarrassment happens, you know, as holidays, people sure. uh, you know show up to holiday functions. And, uh, yeah, things, things <laughs> go south. So anyway, that was, uh, that was an interesting thing. And, um, this is also, uh, you probably, if you're paying attention, kind of part of a common theme here is that there's really no way to talk about this in a prescriptive sense. Okay. So the best thing I can do is offer some, some, some things to think about. Uh, in, some in, biblical in, principles. Biblical, yeah. Because. There's no way to tell somebody, well, if they fit these five things, that means, yes, I can trust them again. And there's no, no way to tell 
somebody um, uh, that's on the other side of the coin that uh, it takes this long for your family to start trusting you again. Right. To 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 kind of start to kick this 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 thing off. To kind of uh, I will I'm, I'll, I want to get into a little bit of my own history. So my history with um, treatment and and sobriety and whatnot is basically in uh, broke up in three main phases. Okay, so well four. So you had the you had from like twelve years old to twenty four was just progressive active substance abuse that 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 brought me to a point at twenty four where um, through circumstances I won't get into brought me into my first experience with treatment and sobriety. Now this wasn't at a formal treatment facility. I actually found sobriety through the rooms of 12-step meetings, okay, specifically Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, interestingly enough, my uh, going back to the January thing, my uh, sponsor that I worked with, and I, I won't share any more beyond the generic, he was my sponsor, his sobriety date was January 2nd. So, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I always remember that about him, and he was a good, he was a good man and helped me out a lot. But anyway, I had a um, I had a stint in sobriety that lasted six years, from 24 to 30. And in that time, I went to college to become a pastor and actually completed college and whatnot. So, without getting into details, at 30 years old, graduating from school, I went, I relapsed. I relapsed very hard and very significantly, and I stayed in that relapse for five years. Now. In that relapse, there were, this is where the multiple programs, the multiple attempts of trying to get back to what uh, I had at once had. Um, and so there was a lot of family wanting to see, to be encouraging about me trying and a lot of disappointment. And um, that ended up in uh, me coming to Freedom Farm at 35 years old. And now it's been almost nine years um, since. Uh, uh, I have had any kind of mind, mood or mind altering substance um, uh, flowing through my bloodstream. So, um, so uh, there was a lot of this with my own family, and and a lot of this personally. Um, I was terrified of uh, consistent uh, sobriety because I had had it before, and it had lasted for a, a significant period of time. I mean, six years from. IV drug use to six years of so of sobriety and and a lot of success. I mean, I got a college. I was a high school dropout and I got a college degree. I mean, that was that was really significant. And to fall from that, um, and to even when I started in this last nine years, get some success. There was always this gnawing feeling in the back of your mind that you would that there that the other shoe was going to drop eventually. Yeah. Not that I had anything but this gnawing feeling in the back of my head that it was going to happen. So um, uh, one thing I could tell you is that for me personally, I actually traced that back to um, a lot of fears that I was having because of uh, information that I was taught during my first six years that um, I know that it comes from a good motivation to try to encourage people what I mean is you get a lot of things like um, in 12-step meetings, they will tell you that meeting makers make it. So what is the opposite of that? People that don't make meetings don't make it, right? And there was this almost insistency that you had to, to 
do 12 steps um, in order to be sober. And I'm not saying that that is fundamentally within the literature of, this is all kind of, I think, added stuff to the communities there. And that stuff kind of really kind of stuck in the back of my head and kind of gave me a fear because I was not doing 12-step meetings and I was not working the 12 steps. So I had this thing. So that's where a lot of my personal fear came from. I had a lot of that personally. And then there was also the hesitancy that was very palatable, palatable mm. from my family that I think it had all the rights to keep uh, me at arm's length. So two of those things working together, not that my family was being discouraging, but you can feel it when you're talking to your family that there's... They're always guarded. They're always guarded, right. Yeah. So I had to learn with how to deal with that that guarding of my family. And I also had to had to learn how to deal with my thought processes of things that I had learned with the past. And ultimately, that once, that's to my first big point, okay? My first big point in both areas, okay, with, uh, with the person on the side of the coin of having the, the problem with substance abuse and the person that has a loved one with substance abuse, you can't put your confidence, faith, and trust in the circumstances. Our, as believers, our faith and trust goes in the Lord and that he overrules all those circumstances. So we could have a desire to see somebody absolutely live their life a certain way. And what happens is when you start putting your expectations that I will be confident in this person, right? Like my son or daughter or brother or sister that struggles with, as long as their life looks this way, I will be confident that they're, they're, they're heading in the direction God is leading them in. Well, that ultimately puts your um, expectations above God's will. Does that make sense? Put your will over their lives instead of God's will. Right. Can people uh, fail in life and, and could, could God be sovereign over that? Absolutely. He always is. He's always sovereign. That We need to put our trust in all circumstances with people's lives. And we need to be careful, okay, as a loved one dealing with somebody that, with the act of substance abuse, um, that if it doesn't start lining up with our desires, that we don't get into the flesh and try to make a correction in their life. So what might that look like as far as uh, in typical ways that addicts might have broken trust with people and, and typical ways that family members might say, well, I'll, I'll believe them when they start doing this, this, or that. What what are typical kind of customary ways or, or common ways that that plays out actually? Right. So um, I would say that uh, one of the first things, especially in uh, probably both male and female, one of the first things that uh, people that come from uh, substance abuse backgrounds normally do is they get overconfident in their early sobriety or early transformation. And they want to, in a sense, keep keep the progress, the good progress going. So because it's not happening, um, another thing that we all share is like this, this desire for everything to happen now, the instant gratification for everything to be like as amazing as it possibly can be. We don't know how to, to engage in the process, which is normally kind of slow. So when it becomes too slow for us, we, we try to speed up the, the force it along the, the goodness of everything 
And so we we take things that are that are good, and we and we and we basically try to start manipulating those things as being necessary. So here's the one of the biggest ones is a relationship, right? So is a relationship a good thing? Absolutely, it could be a wonderful thing. Marriage is a wonderful thing. Okay.、Um, I hope my wife is watching. <laughs>、um, so, when, just to be clear, when you say relationship, you're talking male female relationship. Yeah, male female relationship. relationship, romantic relationship. It's like, hey, you know what? I'm four months clean now. My life has taken some dramatic, made some. I made some dramatic changes. So, what do I need、um, to keep this going? You know, what would be really good for me right now is a relationship. And、uh, this is something that. Back to my fondness of the guy that worked with me、uh, back when I was in AA,、um, he told me when I started talking like that because、uh, AA, I'll, I'll give them.、Uh, they, they do suggest that you you don't really involve yourself. I mean, back in the rooms I used to go to, they say, "Hey, you know, you should stay away from relationships for a, a, a year. You should. That's a good rule of thumb. Okay, stay away from a year." Again, you know, sometimes it it's it's not for everybody, but that's just a good rule of thumb to keep out. So. I remember him. I remember him、uh, telling him, like you know, I, overconfident, saying, "Hey, you know what? I, I'm about like four to six months."、So、I was like, "Things are going well. I actually had a pretty decent job," and、uh, and he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, "Hey, buddy."、Um, uh, he said, "If there's a girl that's attracted to you right now," he said, "Run from her." <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, "What do you mean, run from her?" And he goes, "Buddy, you don't even have an unrestricted driver's license at this point." And he's like, "You know, I was on a a hardship license because of a DUI back then. I couldn't even I couldn't even legitimately legally take her out on a date because because my license was. Oh,、still、she、there. drove. He could right, and I was still paying off <laughs> paying off stuff, and it just there was a lot of things. And you know, they they back then this is a common thing too. They like. Why don't you get a plant and、uh, take care of that for a little while and see how you do with that? If your plant doesn't die after a certain amount of months, maybe you'd be ready for a relationship. Anyway, that's just kind of funny thing. But they, so, did, they didn't give you do the plant and take care of it for a while, and then a pet for a while, and then a. <laughs> Again,、uh, this this leading into when when would be a, a sign that、uh, this person is going the wrong direction. Is a sign that you basically have a loved one, and they 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 start doing what、uh, what I was doing, rolling out this plan that is already causing a kink in your spirit. Like, on hey, I think that maybe this isn't a, such a good plan. Moving too fast, and then they get defensive and they start to tell you, and then then typically what happens is is like they'll try to advocate for their plan. You'll be against it. It'll become a conflict. You'll you'll justify getting into the flesh and and saying、uh, you're making a terrible mistake and and maybe be harsh on that person and they'll justify that you're being unloving and untrusting and then that usually ends up really bad. So、um, you know what? Go back to how my sponsor dealt with it. He calmly said, "You know what? I think it's a bad idea right now. You know, you're you're a grown human being. Here's what I see. You should think." But you know what? I love you. If you're going to make a mistake,、um, I don't have to be right. You know, my plans aren't necessarily right. If you're going to go ahead and、um, follow that, I, I I want to support you with giving you good advice on how to pursue that. But like, I, I hope you can be honest with me. If it starts to go off the the rails, let's make a plan for if you know your plan starts going off the rails. So. Again, this is like one of those things that like we get stuck into this. You know, when you got somebody 
that's that comes from a very dysfunctional background and they're starting to get some success and then you start to see that maybe they're going back down the road of dysfunction. I don't know why. Well, I do know why. It's because we don't want to see them going back down those very destructive pathways that we once had. But you know what? Really, this is no different than discipling anybody, right? I mean, who in the world, um, even if you don't have a substance abuse issue, makes poor decisions and needs people saying, hey, look, I think you're making a poor decision. If someone says, well, you know what? I haven't, I don't, it hasn't manifested as a very poor decision yet. It's just a assumption it may be a poor decision. You know, why would we, why would we get all in the flesh and yell and scream and, and basically uh, determine that that person is going to fail at this point? They could be, they could, that all could be, but you know, how are we to respond to people? We're supposed to come alongside them and try to help guide them. And of course, you know, you need some boundaries to be drawn with people. You know, if you're working with somebody that necessarily doesn't have a, a substance abuse issue, right? Or if you're bringing up your own children, right? And you say, hey, look, you know, we're going to go down this path together. I'm going to try to guide you. But obviously at some point, if they have broke broke a boundary, then there's a consequence. And, you know, you got to figure out what those things are. And I don't think that those things become different if you're dealing with somebody that has a substance abuse issue right. as just regular discipleship of somebody. And if I might, the uh, for those that, if you've got somebody that's in, in a loved one that you know that is in... Um, this time after they've been, they're sober and you're kind of concerned about them going down that path, I would refer you in and you think that they might be going into a relapse. We've, we did a show a couple shows ago specifically about not letting a lapse become a relapse. And so you might take a look at that and there's some resources in there that might help you with that as well. What I hope you understand from the loved one's perspective is that it's not so cut and dry. If you start getting some kinks in your spirit, how much of those are legitimate fears and how much of those are just calls to say, hey, you know what, where do I, where do I speak into my loved one's decision-making process? Um, uh, where, are, where is my boundary when, it comes, when, it, when I feel that they're going to basically uh, go down that path that I, I can't support anymore? But how far can I support a decision, even if it's something I think is a bad idea at the point, you know? Um, and where is my trust in God in all of that situation, you know? Right. Can you maybe give some kind of biblical principles on how to handle that situation? Maybe some scriptures they could go to or maybe just some... Maybe some more general. Yeah. Go and look at how Jesus discipled the disciples, okay? Um, those guys screwed up and went down paths that were were terrible, okay? I mean, he literally told them the mistakes they were going to make, and they made them, and what it, what was his response? You know, if, one, of the, the one, one of the most beautiful pictures is that, you know, uh, when they were all in that room, he said, you know what, uh, this is how you lead people, right? He took off his garments, he got a bowl of water, and he washed their feet. Right at the Last Supper, yeah. And even during that process, Peter screwed up. If you go back and read that, uh, <laughs> uh, he said, "No, you're not going to wash my feet." Right. Like, oh, look, I'm trying to teach you something, Peter. And it, uh, he finally did. And I think Peter finally learned that lesson after some more failure. If you go and read it, but just look, Jesus really shows us that. Hey, look, there are some. There, we really need to need to understand that human beings need to 
need to to make their mistakes and learn from them, and we need to be there to to walk with them. But if we see somebody making a mistake, in our opinion, or we're assuming they're making a mistake, but they haven't made it yet, sometimes we need to give them the room to make it, as scary as that may be, and and we need to protect ourselves from getting in the flesh from trying to keep somebody from making it, because that's usually what the problem, how the problem ensues, is that we get such fear that our loved ones are going to go in back into this world of deep dark addiction that before they even get that close, we see some trouble on the horizon and we kind of unload on the in the flesh on them, and uh, and then we kind of just detach ourselves from being able to guide them along the way. Which if you hadn't done that, you could have possibly walked even closer with them and then help guide them back you know that i hope that makes sense yeah it does and one of the things that i was thinking too is as you're talking about a kind of biblical principles of how to handle uh wayward children or or wayward loved ones look at how god handled the israelites in say exodus and uh and in deuteronomy and and in joshua um just kind of you know they just Stiff-necked people. He just kept <laughs> he just kept providing for them and and bringing them out of one situation after another. And they just kept getting into. I mean, the, what popped into my head now is just you know they made the the idol of the golden calf at the foot of uh, of the mountain when got when Moses was up there or Moses was up there getting the twelve command ten commandments. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> twelve commandments or, or from Mel Brooks movie fifteen. <laughs> yeah, right. Ten. I, I mean ten commandments. Anyway. Anyway. Um, so uh, on the other side of the individual that's come out of the background and is struggling because their family um, is not uh, doesn't seem to be uh, trusting them to the degree um, they would like to. I, I try to give some very general principles to people because this is a very common problem. Okay, first is is that we need to acknowledge the amount of time that we lived along loved ones in this very dysfunctional state and compare that to the time that now you've been doing well. Because usually there's a giant uh, a chasm between the two things, right? So, yeah, you know what? I gave my family grief for the last 15, 20 years, but, and, but I've been doing great for six months now and they just don't seem to be buying it, you know? I, I usually like to try to gently remind people it's only been six months, okay? How does that compare to the 20 years of the dysfunction, man? I mean, we seem to forget that. That seems to be a, a pretty big thing to forget when you're on that side of it. I know I did, okay? I think it's, like you said, human nature. We want, we think, well, I'm fixed now. Now I want my entire situation fixed. Right. And and it just, it just doesn't work like that. People don't work like that. And when people uh, ask, you know, how do I deal with it, uh, with my family that continues to seem to give me grief, uh, it's hard to, to, to really get into a good balance of, you don't want to encourage uh, your loved one's unhealthy fears, right? But again, you're probably not the one to confront them with their unhealthy fears. So it's almost kind of like you bear their flesh with understanding, if that makes any sense. This is and go I, a little deeper, yeah. Yeah, let me give you a deeper. Let me give you a little deeper by giving you just a, a story I tell everybody. So uh, I had been at Freedom Farm for about a year and a half, and doing the best I'd done in a long time, and at least five years. 
and I was at teaching class out in a remote area here, and um, I had gotten a couple phone calls from my mom, but I realized that that it was going to be a while before I was in good cell phone signal before I'd be able to have an uninterrupted phone call. So I just waited to call her back. So that took about a half an hour for me to get to a place where I knew. So I called her back, and she immediately um, was full of emotion and said, what is wrong? Why didn't you answer your phone? What is going on up there? And I was shocked because nothing was going on. Um, I didn't realize what the problem, I didn't have any idea what her problem was. And so unhealthy fear I, was being projected to, to me. And I got angry. I, I did. I was like, what is your problem? And she said, you need to tell me. She started demanding things like, you need to tell me what's going on. I don't even know if my mom remembers this. She's watching right now. She'll probably tell me later. I don't remember this, but I do. I remember this vividly. I got mad at her and I got justified in my anger because I thought she was being, um, uh, uh, she was listening to ungodly fear in her life and I wasn't going to encourage it. So it gave me the justification to say, you've got a problem there and, uh, and uh, you need to deal with your problem. So I felt very convicted because I really didn't know why she was doing what she was doing. And so I called, I called her back after a little bit of time and I kind of prayed about it. And I said, I tried to engage and understand what was going on. I said, hey, what's going on? Like, And so it turns out my mom had driven past a hospital that I had been in at least two times for because of things related to my substance abuse that were very, very traumatic to my mother, okay? And she had just driven by this hospital and it just kind of stuck in her head. I need to check on my son. And then it started to snowball as she tried to check in with me. She couldn't get a hold of me. And it started to feed this fear. Right. And we always always jump to the worst possible conclusion That's in what situations happened. like that. Yeah. It's human nature, I think. It's human nature. So what I did was, and I didn't do a very good job of it, but I, I had to go back and think about it. And I've thought about this quite often. I share this with a lot of people. I had to understand I did that. I was part of that. Okay. I, you know, whatever you want to call it. I traumatized my own mother and it doesn't excuse her unhealthy fear, right? She still needs to trust in the Lord. She still needs to, um, to not let her desires and emotions get the best of her and bring her into a direction where she's in the flesh, which she was, she was in the flesh. But I need to understand that I really don't have a legitimate basis to be mad at her about any of this either. I'm not the the, the one that's going to 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 relieve her of these fears or change her heart or anything like that. The only thing I can do is try to point her to Christ the best way possible. And the way I did it by being justified, and I think I even hung up on her, was not the way to point her to Christ. The way to point her to Christ was to listen to her and to, to encourage her that, you know what, this wasn't, this that none of that was true, Mom. The Lord's really doing a work in my life. And you know what, I hope that you can trust him with my life as much as I'm trusting my life, something along those lines. So very important to, when dealing with loved ones, to, to know that was a year and a half. That was a year and a half into me being here. And, you know, again, it was only a year and a half. Right. And uh, second thing, and probably this is probably the last thing I, I tell my, uh, so that wasn't it. Uh, 
building trust. How do you start? So when it came to my specific situation, very uh, memorable uh, occasion for me. Um, I, I got married. I believe I had my daughter at this point. So she's four and a half years old. So this was, this was about four and a half years ago. Cause I think she was newborn, but it was 4th of July. Um, uh, and my whole family came up here for like a family reunion to spend 4th of July. Now there was a, a shotgun that I had gotten for a, a, a graduation from college present that my mom had bought for me that was very expensive. And in my years of relapse, that was my golden ticket of a thing to pawn to get immediate cash to buy drugs. And I had done this a few times. And when I came up to Freedom Farm, one of the last phone calls I made to my mother before I arrived here was to let her know that this shotgun was in pawn down in Florida. And her response to me was, you know, son, until you start losing things, I don't think you're ever going to get better. So I had inquired about that shotgun to my mom after I'd been up here for some time. And I remember she answered in such a way to where I thought that she just let the thing go. So fast forward, I've been up here now for years. I'm married. I have children and I'm unpacking the car and my mom's standing in the driveway with her husband and I go out to get the last bags and there's the shotgun sitting in the back of the trunk. And I looked at her and she burst out crying. I opened it. There's the original pawn receipt and a card that I still have. And she wrote basically in the card that it took this long for her to feel comfortable giving me that shotgun back because it just always brought her this fear that I would use it for the purposes I used it for before, which was hurting me and she didn't feel comfortable giving it back to me until then. So how long does it take your loved ones uh, to start trusting you again? I don't know. <laughs> it took mine years, years and years. Roughly how long? Like seven, eight? No, I would say at least five. Uh, and I'm not saying they still trust me. I think we're probably, probably past, I don't know, maybe some of them still struggle with it. But the thing was, it, it's not up to me to work that work in their lives. It's up for me to understand their struggle with it um, as they struggle with it. And it's, un, it's up for me to understand that I need to do what I need to do to acknowledge that I have become part of that. I, I am a reason for that problem. And the only thing I can do is continue trusting the Lord for my own life and continue to work this life out in front of them. You know, the only thing that's ever going to fix that is consistent um, uh, progressive sanctification. That's the only thing that's going to... And how long that takes, I don't know. That's going to be different, different for everybody. For person, yeah. And as a loved one, oh, uh, there's my mom. She trusts me now, she says. <laughs> but God's in control. Uh, uh, as a loved one, you know, we need to be careful too, not unloading our unhealthy fears on our loved ones as they're trying to... Uh, uh, live that life of consistent uh, uh, change and transformation. Um, you know, that is a, a path that you are called to engage with, trusting the Lord with, and being aware of your own unhealthy fears as, as that, that process is happening. Any final comments or thoughts before we uh, call it a day? No, I just want to say I appreciate everybody that watches these things and passes them around. 
it brings, I know myself and Todd, great encouragement to be able to, to do these things. Uh, there's my brother Danny picking up at the end. He's going to have to go back and um, watch the whole show. He's actually in the next room um, <laughs> hearing all this stuff. So uh, love you too, Mom. Uh, thank you, everybody that uh, that came aboard. And you know what? Merry Christmas, everybody. We'll see you again for the next live show on January 10th. Yep. And just as a final reminder, if you want to be notified when we get these these shows, uh, the edited versions on the website, um, then just uh, go to beyondsobriety.org and uh, sign up for the email list and you'll get an email when we send those out. Also, uh, we're going to be getting a first thing in the new year. We've got enough episodes in the bank now that we're going to be getting on the podcast platforms like uh, Stitcher and uh, iTunes and all the other ones that you might. So you, you'll be able to listen to, of course, the audio versions of this on the podcast there as well. Uh, in the meantime, if you've got topics you, that you would like us to talk about, either email them to us or uh, get on the Facebook page and put them on there and we'll be glad to tackle them. Thanks for watching. We will see you uh, January 10th. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.